Thank you so much, Andrew, Randy, Naomi. I love that song, love the message, and also love those that are bringing that message. Thank you so much for that great reminder. And um, I'm so thankful for this church. And as Pastor McMass said in Sunday school, it's so interesting how God has all of our lives interwoven together. And we don't always understand it in the moment. But who would have thought in 2002 or 2003 that we would come to our, this church, a great church, with my wife and Randy, I think, what, 15 years old by that time or something like that, 16 years old at that time. And uh, uh, coming here, that was about 18 years ago, and on deputation, and then to find out, you know, several years later that Naomi and Randy would get married and take the gospel. <sighs> I promised I wasn't going to do this. <laughs> to take the gospel back to a country I love. With, with two people I love with my heart. So, so grateful for the Menak family for reaching one of their children for what this church has invested in their pastor and their family. And I get to reap just a small part of what you all have done for my wife and I. I am so undeserving, but so very, very thankful. And I'm thankful for the way you all took care of us also this week. You put us in a place that has to be right next to heaven, the delta at the end. You know, being a missionary, you stay in some pretty interesting places. My wife spent a week with the long necks in a thatched hut, spraying hairspray on spiders that were crawling above her head. <laughs> spent time in Sri Lanka after the tsunami when there was no motels to sleep in, and we'd sleep on the cement floors inside of churches in Sri Lanka. And then to come back here and be treated in a fashion again that is far beyond what is necessary. To meet these other great missionaries that are here, Brother Ashford, Brother Palman, the Monteos, of course, Randy and Naomi. What a joy it is to be able to invest in these men's ministry, to know that when we stand before Jesus Christ, as we found out this week, when we receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, you receive the prophet's reward. When you receive a righteous man in the name of a righteous man, you receive that righteous man's reward. If all you can do is give a cup of cold water to a little child, God said, in no wise will you lose that reward. And so I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be able to meet these men and Brother Montoya, what a great example he is of the love of Jesus Christ and taking the gospel to Albuquerque. I'm excited to hear about that tonight. As we talk about the Great Commission, we major many times about foreign missions. But do you realize the first part of the Great Commission starts with Jerusalem? It starts here in Espanola. That brother that is going to Turkey, do you realize it is in Turkey when you read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3? The seven churches of chapter 2 and chapter 3 were all in Turkey. They're no longer there today. And not passing fault or blame, great persecution took place there. But Jerusalem, for whatever reason, wasn't taken care of. And the whole country was lost. And so the first part of mission is taking care of the home fires. It's been said, the light that shines the furthest shines the brightest at home. Paul spent many years there in Turkey. Of course, it wasn't called Turkey at that time. Established many churches in Turkey that are no longer there. What a shame it would be if we forget about the home front and not be 100% involved, sold out, totally committed to reaching Espanola, your Jerusalem for Jesus Christ. If you fail to reach Espanola, you fail to reach the world. So thank you for all the great meals, those of you that cooked. 
I kept telling my wife we're going to start a diet, and every time we start, there's some type of ministry function where they're serving food. But thank you so much for all the hospitality that we've enjoyed here, just the friendliness, the openness, the love of Christ that I see here. This is a church that is to be greatly cherished. And traveling through much of the western United States on deputation, being over maybe more than 100 churches, I've never counted them. But I'm going to say it again, this is a special place. Don't forget how special this place is. Invest here as well investing in all the world. And so this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter number 19, and we're going to talk about the economy of eternity, the economy of eternity. We've talked this week about, as I already said, as you receive God's messenger, whoever that messenger is, as you embrace that person, as you sustain the ministry of that person, when you stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, that reward that the missionary receives, you receive also because you've invested in that ministry. And so we talked about that, receiving a prophet, receiving a righteous man, giving a cup of cold water. Then we talked about the math of missions and how the church started off by being added to then greatly added to, and that was people coming to know Christ as salvation. And then it said the disciples were multiplied. Those that were saved and learning about Jesus Christ, they were multiplied. And then lastly, it says the disciples were greatly multiplied. So we have addition, multiplication. What follows that is division, not a lack of unity, but sending the church out to reach the world. You see, the church at Jerusalem only took care of the church at Jerusalem. When Saul came around, who would soon become the Apostle Paul, he scattered the church. And all the church that was left at Jerusalem was the apostles. But because God multiplied the disciples, greatly multiplied the disciples, that whole church is being disciples. They went everywhere preaching the word of Jesus Christ. So we see the math of missions is mentioned in Scripture. And now we're going to look at the economy of eternity. The economy of eternity. So if you'll take your Bibles with me, and we'll be in Luke chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 11 through verse number 27. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through verse number 27. The economy of eternity. How does eternity work? How does eternity function? And as they heard these things, the disciples, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Here's the context. They thought it was time to quit working for Jesus Christ. They thought it was a time to, so to speak, lay that spiritual sword and shield aside because now they're going to rule as kings when they get to Jerusalem now the Messiah is going to be the king, and we're going to rule and reign so we can sit back on our laurels and just expect to have our thrones, and we've talked about that in messages. And because that is what they are thinking, Jesus brings this parable to them. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return and he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Notice he didn't say, Occupy till you think I'm going to come back. Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first of the servants, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities? And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou over five cities." Remember, this is what the disciples are thinking. They're going to be ruling over cities, and this is why the parable says they are gaining cities. Verse 20, 
And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. Can I say that the Lord says you can tell who a Christian is because by their fruit you shall know them. Here's one that claimed to be a servant of the master, but actually was one of the citizens that hated him. Therefore, there's no fruit produced whatsoever because you cannot produce fruit without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, for I feared thee because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then givest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? You see what is he telling the disciples in the church that when I come, you better have something to give back. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he has ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, now we... Bow before your presence. Lord, already today, we have been blessed beyond measure. Lord, what a joy it is to sing the great hymns of the faith. Oh, Lord, how much I enjoy just singing those great words and seeing a congregation that enjoys singing the great truths of the hymns of the faith. And Lord, just enjoying what we saw about the missionary there going to Turkey Lord, to rekindle the light that once was there, that almost completely has gone out. And the special and music about uh, taking that light, that torch, and, and spreading it across all the land. Lord, that's not a command to missionaries. That's the command to the church and to every member in it. We all are missionaries. Some send and some go. But we all receive the same reward as we invest in the ministries of Jesus Christ. And Lord, today, perhaps there is one here today that might be like this foolish servant, Lord, who's not invested anything in eternity because they've never confessed their sins and asked Christ to forgive them and to save them and become their Savior. Lord, this morning that can happen in just a moment of time. Or they can become a child of the Most High God simply by their faith, believing in Jesus and the grace of God that brings salvation to all men and women that simply will confess their sins and ask Christ to save them. Lord, would you move on their hearts and now the rest of your people. Lord, there's been dozens upon dozens, missions of conference, great men of God, women of God, missionaries, preachers have come through in the years past. And Lord, the church is still here, growing, becoming stronger, becoming more united under Jesus Christ and the ministry of the pastor that you have put here, Lord God. And so I pray for this ministry, that it would continue to go on, Lord, to become a brighter and brighter and brighter light as each day goes by. Lord, help us now to understand the economy of heaven, the economy of eternity and help us to realize not just the joy that comes in investing but also the joy that comes in obedience and doing what we're supposed to do we ask these things in jesus name amen as we look at this parable we see there is a nobleman and this nobleman is a picture of jesus christ he's speaking of himself he says this nobleman is going to go into a far away country and he's going to receive a kingdom. And when he receives that kingdom, he's going to come back to receive from his servants that which they've invested in the ministry of this nobleman since the time that he left. And so the far country is heaven. The return, of course, is the second coming of Christ. The servants that 
invest are those who profess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. And they just don't talk about the return of their master. They act upon that coming return the whole time their master is gone. They're investing, 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 and investing. So when the master, Jesus Christ, returns and the church is called before the judgment seat of Christ, and the Lord looks at each and every one of you that professes his name and says, listen, I've given you a pound. What's a pound here? It's money. But your pound, church, is your time, your talents, and your treasures. That's the pound which God has left you. And when you stand before Jesus Christ, he's going to take inventory of his investment in you to see what your investment is in him. And oh, how we want to hear that voice of our Lord saying, well done, well done, thou good and successful servant. Is that what the Bible says? He doesn't reward success, he rewards faithfulness. He said, I don't have much. Doesn't matter how much you have. Because God measures faithfulness, not successfulness. He that is faithful in little is also faithful in what? So it doesn't matter if God hasn't called you to be a missionary or a pastor or an evangelist. It doesn't matter. Just use what you've been given. Bloom where you've been planted. And one day God will congratulate you by saying, well done, my faithful servant. And so as we talk about the economy of eternity, first of all, we're going to see the command that comes to these servants. They were expected to persevere. It means just to keep on going. It's going to be rough. Their master's gone. They're living in a kingdom that is hostile not only to their master, but is hostile to them. Can I tell you, America's quickly coming to that point. Doesn't matter to the child of God. We're only called to be faithful. These servants served a master that wasn't accepted by the citizenry. Their message is going to be scorned, but they have to be faithful to proclaim it, even though they're in a very hostile time period. Church, we are coming to that period very quickly. Pastor Trebert in Santa Clara, California, listened to, um, I think it was a YouTube video, wasn't it, shared that he uh, produced talking to the governor Newsom of California, begging that they would open the church. He is being fined $5,000 a day because he won't have the right protocols that the state wants them to have. He is over hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to non-elected officials because Santa Clara County is contrary to the plan of Jesus Christ. The citizens there hate them. But Pastor Trebert just keeps on going, investing, investing, and investing. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. Today you'll still find them in big tents there on their property, getting fined again as he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all coming to that point. Just as in this parable, they hated the nobleman. Therefore, Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. But there's no call of retreat. There's no repenting, which means to turn around, repenting from what you've been called to do. We have to be faithful marching on. So number one, not only were the servants expected to persevere, the church of Jesus Christ is commanded to persevere. It's the expectation of Jesus Christ. So look at verse 11 again. And as they heard these things, the disciples, he, Jesus, added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately, dis, or should immediately appear. So here's the first thing we have to have in our life. If we're going to persevere, we need to learn how to deal with life's disappointments. You must learn how to deal with life's disappointments. Because our expectations are not going to meet with the reality of this new age that we're living in. 
It's no longer a time of prosperity in America. It's going to be a time where inflation is going to go through the roof. It's coming. It's happening even now. So listen, you have to deal with the disappointments. Life's going to get hard. But they crucified our Savior. You see, these 12 disciples at this time on their way to Jerusalem, they're about to face the greatest adversities of their lives. It doesn't come from the enemies without. It comes from the enemies within. The battle isn't with the world. The battle many times is from within saying, I will be faithful even when the world hates me. So they're about to face the greatest adversities of their lives, and they are the enemy. You say, Pastor, how are they their own enemy? Because of the wrong interpretation of Scripture. They had the wrong interpretation of Scripture. Their expectations about ruling and reigning with Christ, they were based upon biblical truth. It was absolutely true that they are and we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. This is the day that every Bible-believing Jewish individual was looking forward to for the last 400 years since 586 B.C., that Jesus was going to come, their Messiah would be revealed, and that he is going to set up a kingdom, and that they were going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. They had the right biblical passage but the incorrect interpretation because Jesus said he must needs go to Jerusalem not to set up the kingdom, but to face Mount Calvary with the cross upon his back to bleed and to die. They had the right biblical doctrine, just the wrong interpretations. And so they were looking for the kingdom age. This is why, as we mentioned through the week, while during the time just before the Lord's Supper, the 12 are arguing which one of them is going to be the greatest. Why? Because they understood the scripture, they understood the biblical prophecy, but their expectation was it was going to happen then. And here Jesus' death is just hours away. And they don't even understand it. They fight and they argue amongst themselves. There's a disunity because they want to know who's going to sit on the left and who's going to sit upon the right. You see, they are going to have to learn how to deal with disappointments. You see, they misunderstood verse 10 in Luke chapter 19. This is dealing with Zacchaeus. Remember the wee little man climbed up in a chair? He comes down, invites us to the house. He accepts Christ as his Savior. Verse number 10, it says this. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. They believe what Jesus said, but they had the wrong interpretation. They didn't believe that the Son of Man was coming to seek and save lost people, and through his death and resurrection, they could become children of God. That's what Jesus meant, but here's what they heard. We're in Jerusalem because God's going to save the Son of Man is going to seek the Jews. He's going to save the Jews. And he's going to set up the kingdom immediately. That's what verse 11 says in Luke 19. They thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And so they have to deal with this disappointment. They have to learn to persevere. And yet, they're all going to deny him and run away until Christ returns from the grave. And the day of Pentecost, they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And so we also have to deal with disappointments. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is coming back in my lifetime. As Pastor said, you can't help but to look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 and then look at the Israeli news channels and you're thinking, holy mackerel, Ezekiel is in the Golan Heights right at this moment. Every one of those five nations are camped right on the Golan Heights. That's why Israel are doing sorties or bombings in Syria every single week. Because Ezekiel 38, those five nations are right there right as we speak. I believe he's coming back. But church doesn't mean it's time to rest on our laurels. 
Because he's coming back, we need to work even harder than we've ever worked before. Have your theology correct. Yes, Jesus is coming back when? I don't know. Therefore, we can't get in arguments of disunity talking about, I want the greatest position in the church. It's not about a person. It's all about Jesus Christ. Christ is returning soon. Everything seems to fall in place. Yet we must be prepared to live as it won't happen for a hundred more years. That's how we deal with disappointments. We know the truth that he's coming back. But the truth is, Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. Therefore, we got to work today as if he's coming tomorrow. But we can't be disappointed if it's not until a hundred or a thousand more years. Who knows? That's the disappointment of the disciples. They were correct in their Bible understanding, but their application was incorrect. So we have to deal with disappointments if we're going to persevere. Secondly, if we're going to persevere, we have to, be, we have to understand that we've been delivered a debt. I don't mean we're in debt to have to make monthly payments. The debt is that Jesus Christ expects us to be his witnesses. And we have a debt by the great power and love that Jesus Christ gave us. And so we must take that pound, so to speak, the gospel, and spread it all around the world because we've been delivered a debt, the Great Commission. The pastor asked me to talk a little bit about Sri Lanka. If you remember on Christmas Day, I or um, Christmas Day in about 2003, or 2004, there was a great tsunami that killed almost a quarter of a million people. And one of the missionaries in Cambodia that we knew really well, the Burdine family, they used to be missionaries in Sri Lanka. 50,000 people died on Sri Lanka, just a small little island. And there was a doctor friend of mine named Dr. Tom Johnson and he said, you know, we can get medicine here in Cambodia without a prescription. We can bring anything we want. And so that's exactly what the three of us did. It was, we bought tickets to fly into Sri Lanka, devastated by that tsunami. We came with several, like, footlocker-sized cases of nothing but medicine. I'd also bought a case of Bibles to pass out to those in Sri Lanka, it's evenly divided by Christians, Muslims, and the Buddhist. Evenly divided. What did I say? Hindus. Hindus. And so the missionary that we stayed with in that church, every time that they met, the Sri Lankan army had to be outside his doors. They had to write their name down in a book that they were there, just so they wouldn't become martyrs. And so as we landed there, we had our case of Bibles. We had a couple interpreters that came from the church that we first visited, and they came with us for three weeks and traveled all around Sri Lanka, all along the coast where destruction was everywhere, where there used to be towns and cities and villages on the coast. Sometimes there was nothing left, not a brick, not a brick at all. The waves, the ocean went out almost a mile, and the people all running out there picking out fish, they didn't understand that in a few moments it's coming back at the speed of a jet liner, 500 miles an hour. It hits those coastal cities, those people that are in the water, they perish instantly. To those towns that were on the coast, it literally uprooted their foundation and took them out to sea, and there's no notice of a town left. Remember one town, the graveyard was overcome and the coffins and corpses were laying up on top of the ground as you walked down the streets. We were there because we wanted to share the gospel. For three weeks, we would set up medical clinics. We would travel to each town on the coast. We would tell them what we're going to do. They were in need of medicine and we had footlockers full of it. And as they would pass out the medicines, we would have a service beforehand. We would sing songs like we just sung. And then the messages that were preached were interpreted by one of the Christian interpreters to those that came to the medical clinic. And many accepted Christ as Savior. And then we would deal with them 
with the medicine. We planned on staying there for months. We ended up staying there for three weeks. As we came to the close of our third week there, we were in a Muslim village. Two weeks before we came, the Buddhists killed two Christians that came to help because they were Christians. We were told by the pastor there at the church um, in Sri Lanka, when you come to the Muslim villages, be careful. You have our tracks. They have our name on it. Be careful when you get there because it will cause a riot. And so we were careful when we got there. We went to a town that was 100% Muslim. We rented a house. We planned to stay there for who knows how many months. And the day before we had our service, we mingled with all the residents. We sat down and had our pictures taken with the Muslims. There are smiles or laughing. We had a great time. I still have those pictures to remember how well it seemed that they received us. And we did the medical clinic and hundreds of people came in and heard the gospel and were received to handle their medical needs. What we didn't know is that another group from America had arrived and somehow they got a hold of my case of Bibles and they were passing them out in the Muslim community. And the man that was passing out, he didn't understand what was happening, but another Muslim came up to him and said, hey, can I have that whole case? I can pass them out to everybody. And so that particular American was happy. He gave them to him all the Bibles. That man was the cleric of the Muslim mosque. He wasn't interested in passing out Bibles. He was going to kill those who passed them out. And so the next day, we came back from a nearby village with Hindus, had a great service. People came to know Christ as Savior. I remember dealing with, with one man. He said, the, the, the waves came back in so fast that my daughters were out there in the water. And I couldn't save both of my daughters. He looked at me with tears. He said, I only could save one. I had to make a choice on which child was going to live and which child I was going to let die. Of course, I'm pretty emotional anyway. Then I talked to another man. And I looked at his arms, and there were scars all the way up and down both arms. And through the interpreter, I asked, well, what are these scars for? He says, that was the way he sacrificed to his gods to show his devotion. And it left scars up and down both arms. So he shared the gospel through the interpreters. There was a handful of men there that made a confession in Christ. The man who had to choose which daughter to save, he was led to the Lord by the interpreter. The man with the scars running up and down his arms, he came to know Christ as Savior. But when we came back from that village that night to go to the house that we had rented, we started to go in the stores and the restaurants to eat, and all of a sudden those friendly people wouldn't even say a word. They wouldn't wait on us. They wouldn't help us. We couldn't buy anything. And so we went inside a little restaurant that was there that was still open. And we were eating our food, and the other two missionaries left to go back to our van. We had a, a Sri Lankan driver that drove us all over the, the, the country there. And all of a sudden, a group of Sri Lankans came up to me and said, what are you doing here? I said, well, we're here to talk about Christ. And then they left. This happened three times. The third time, there were Sri Lankans who came in. I don't know if they were Christians, but they were sympathetic. There was a group about three to five. And they, I was by myself at the table and said, you don't understand the culture here. If they take one of your Bibles, their sons take one of their Bibles, and if they should happen to believe that father now has to kill them, you don't understand the culture. Boy, oh, sure didn't. And here's what he said. It is easier for us to kill you now than to have to kill our sons and our daughters later. Boy, that got my attention. And all of a sudden, the restaurant was empty. And I started to make my way to the van. And all of a sudden, the street is beginning to fill with people from every direction. 
So I hurriedly get back in the front seat of the van, our, and our other two missionary friends, they're in there. And before we could get away, there's bricks that are raining down from the higher stories of the buildings that were all around. They break out the windows. As many as could fit shoulder to shoulder were taking the van. They were rocking it back and forth, trying to tip the van over while we were inside of it. The poor driver's trying to get back in. And each time, the, the mob pulls him out of the car and beats him up. He's a Muslim, but he's helping us. Three times, he tries to get back in. He gets the door opened, and three times, he's jerked back out and punched in the face and kicked in the gut. And yet, he kept coming over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, the streets are filled with 1,000, 2,000 people. I didn't take a head count. Not a very good Baptist, I guess. <laughs> but there's no way out. The driver gets in one time and he puts it in gear and he tries to go, but literally the amount of people keep the van from being able to move. We thought, this is what dying is going to look like. And suddenly the police came in, and boy, our face just lit up. We're saved. And that angry crowd picked up each of the policemen over their head and literally, as they stood shoulder to shoulder, passed them all the way down the street. I was thinking, boy, all we have left now is the Lord. What a stupid thing to say, huh? <laughs> That's all you need. And then we bowed our heads. I don't know how long this took place, several minutes. You know, we bowed our head and we said, Lord, we're not getting out of this one alive. They've already said they want to kill us. And we prayed. We talked about our last words were, Lord, be with our family. God, in our absence, would you go with them and would you protect them? And God, may your will be done. So we opened our eyes. Sri Lanka was in a state of civil war at that time. Here come the special forces. Did you know angels wear army boots? I wrote an article that was in the BIMI magazine, and that was the title, Angels in Army Boots. And they came, machine guns up and ready. They didn't have to take a shot. The people are scared absolutely to death of those special forces. They made an avenue. They walked right through. If someone didn't move, they were on the ground because the butt of that rifle would knock them right out. They calmly hopped. One of them hopped in, started the car. The others cleared a path. They moved out of the way. He drove that van right through the crowd. And I thought, we're safe. And then here comes this big truck like a diesel and blocks our way to the safety of the police department. I thought, great. We just about made it. No problem. The rest of those special services got that truck out of the way. We made it inside to the police department. We're safe. Except now we spend five hours in the police department with the clerics of the Muslim mosque there saying, we need to put these people on trial. We need to bring them in front of the news cameras. We want them on television, and we want them to ask for our forgiveness for bringing their heresy to our place. Well, of course, we weren't going to do that either. The chief of police was so upset at us. He says, give me your password. He's just angry as countless man. He takes that password up, and he looks, and he sees Americans. <gasps> All of a sudden, his countenance totally changed. If American dies in my city, that's national news. If these Hindus or these Muslims die, that's no problem. All of a sudden, he is 100% on our side. He brings out the Constitution, and he reads it to the Muslim cleric. He says, listen, we have freedom of the religion. These people can be here if they want to be here. It took five hours of arguing until 3 o'clock in the morning. The police chief said, now all these guys that wanted to kill you, they're probably all drunk and passed out. They put us in our van. Put a military escort in the front, a military escort in the back, and they drove us out of that town into another town. And the police chief said this to us, you are going to be on every TV station in Sri Lanka. They know about you in every single mosque. They're going to be looking for you. His advice is you get back to the capital. You put on hats, you cover your face, you cover your head, you get a room, you get a flight out of here, and don't you leave that building. That was one quarantine I had no problem obeying. We did just that. And three days later, we were able to fly out, get back to Cambodia, be with your family once again. 
You see, we have to persevere. It's an expectation to persevere. And then secondly, it said they are delivered a debt. There's 10 servants, there's 10 pounds. Each of them are given the same thing. So we can't say, Lord, what you've given me isn't enough to be able to do your will. We've all been given the same thing. We've all been given a period of time. We've all been given our talents, time, and treasures. And we're all going to have some type of an interest rate that God's going to use to reward his people. They were delivered a debt in verse number 13 to his ten servants. Each one of them received a pound. You know, God rewards faithfulness. So the reward that God's people can have in the judgment seat of Christ won't be measured by what you believe that you lack because in Jesus Christ you lack absolutely nothing. Again, as you invest in those that are sharing the gospel, you receive the same reward as that prophet or that evangelist or that mission or that righteous man. None of us have to stand before Jesus Christ with the feeling that we lack. Notice what the scripture says. As he gave them each a pound, he told them, listen, I want you to occupy, verse number 13, I want you to occupy till I come. Not just occupy until you think I'm coming back. I want you to occupy, which is just a word that means to do business. Because in the parable, that's what they were supposed to do with that pound, to do business. So he says, listen, I want you to occupy till I come. So here's in the parable, it says, listen, I want you to do business with that pound. I want you to invest. I want you to increase the value of that which has been given to you. And that's what we're saying to the church, what Jesus said, listen, I need you to occupy to do business till I come, not to stop doing business because you think the coming's right around the corner. No, you occupy until you hear that trumpet. You occupy till you hear that shout. You occupy until your eyes are filled with the wonder and the glory of the risen Savior who's coming back in the clouds to meet his church in the air. Then you can stop occupying. And so the more time that you have, the greater your opportunity is for success. If you quit occupying now because the rapture is just around the corner, you're going to lessen the value of your work at the judgment seat of Christ because time is always your friend when you're investing something. Time is your friend. Church, time is never the enemy. Time is always the friend. I tell some people, they say, well, I'm just going to retire now. And that's fine. All of us do that. I don't use the word retire in our church. I say we simply retread. We just put a new layer of tread on the tire and we just keep on going. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm just not going to teach. I'm not going to do this, 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 whatever it is, because I'm retired now. Let the younger generation do it. I'm sorry, younger generation. You're going to take my talents out of my cold, dead hands because I'm not giving them up to anybody. Because time is my friend, not my enemy. The longer you invest in something that's good, the more you want to keep it right there. Keep serving Jesus Christ. Because in investing, time is your friend. And so, again, the first part of perseverance, you learn to deal with disappointments. Secondly, we realize we've been delivered a debt, and that debt's going to be called forward at the judgment seat of Christ. And then thirdly, they live in dangerous days. We've already talked about that. The citizens hated the master, therefore they would hate him also. You know, but it's always been that way. The world has always hated our master. Just wasn't publicized so much as it is now. We're living in dangerous days. The servants of the master now and in the parable, they must serve the master in a country that is hated by the citizens. Look in Luke chapter 10, verse number 1 through 3. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. And here, the second time the Lord is sending out his disciples, he's sending out 70 of them. And they're to go out into the cities and they're to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're in to vest what the master Jesus Christ has given to them. Luke 10.1 said, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great. 
but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. And we all have heard that verse. Then verse 3 says, Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Thirdly, we live in dangerous days, but it's always been that way. Anyone that takes a stand and shares the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're compared as going forth as a defenseless lamb amongst a crowd of wolves that love to devour innocent, unprotected little lambs. But yet, he says, listen, you continue to go. You continue to go. See, they lived in dangerous days. We won't turn to 2 Timothy 3 for the sake of time, but Paul tells Timothy, he says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. They will come. That word perilous in our King James Bible, in the Greek it's only used two times throughout the New Testament. Here it's the word perilous. But remember when Jesus came to a village and there is this, one passage is there's two men that were possessed of demons. And the Lord said, what's your name? They said, our name is Legion for their many. A legion in the Roman army is 6,000 people. If this demon is speaking truth, which they don't usually do, that means they're possessed by 6,000 people or demons. You see, it's perilous times. The word perilous is translated in a different English word about these demonic possessed individuals that are possessed by 6,000 demonic beings. The word perilous is translated there as exceeding fierce. They were exceeding fierce. That's the same word as perilous. That's what Jesus is saying that the last days are going to look like. It's going to be dangerous, and it's going to be exceedingly dangerous, exceedingly fierce. Yeah, we live in dangerous days. And as we go on, we are going to look at verses 15 through verse number 19, back in our text there in, in Luke. So they were expected to be profitable. The expectation was they were to be profitable. So verses 15 through 19. So the Lord expected them to be profitable till he came back. The disciples expect to immediately rule and reign. Scripturally right, but misapplied. Verses 15 through 19. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, that he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. He said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, uh, behold, there, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. That is a servant that claims to know the master but in reality is an enemy of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. So these two were expected to be profitable. They were delivered, so to speak, a debt. And for a prescribed time, they were to live out under this debt until the master came back. We see that the one that had one pound and he returned and he gained 10 pounds, he was given authority over 10 cities. Remember, he's speaking this to the disciples, and this is what they're looking forward to. But they're arguing who's going to be the ruler over most of the cities. The way God is going to give rulership over the cities is not by how valuable you think you are, but how faithful you are with that which God has given you. And then the one pound became five pounds, and he was given five cities based upon his faithfulness. The one was given 10 cities based upon his faithfulness. The wicked servant, in the end, was cast into hell because he did not know Jesus Christ as Savior. And then, lastly, that we want to look at this morning is we want to notice the equation of profitableness. The equation of profitableness. They were expected to bring a profit. 
And here is a mathematical statement. Do you realize that when we were given in this parable, that it is measurable by mathematics? It's measurable by mathematics. Let me tell you what I mean by that. First of all, in this illustration, we see that each servant received the same principle. What's the principle? It's the one pound. It's a mathematical statement. We see that in this parable, each one of these servants had the same amount of time. That's a mathematical statement. We see that when they returned, they've provided a certain amount of interest, what they've gained by what God has given them. The unknown in that statement is we do not know the rate of increase. What is the rate of increase? Now, it's been a long time since I went through some of the math paces in ACE. So I was looking around the church, and I was looking for someone that was a math prodigy. That could tell me, what is the mathematical statement to be able to find out what the rate of increase is going to be? And I found one young man here in the Christian school. Dante, have you studied the mathematical statement? Do you know what it is? That doesn't look very convincing. Now, in your loudest voice, stand up and tell me the mathematical statement to this parable. Thank you. Well done. You get an A for the day. You see, this parable is all about a mathematical principle. See, the Lord called him back because he wanted to know how much every man had gained by trading. Well, how do you trade? You take the principle, one pound. You take the rate of interest. We don't know what that is, but we're going to show you something pretty astounding in Scripture. And then you take time. And you multiply those three together, and it's going to equal the interest that the master wanted to deliver back to him. Now, let me clarify again, as we did earlier. I'm not saying that you give just to get. That's not what we're saying whatsoever. I'm so glad that God just doesn't reward in monetary value. I am thankful that his grace saved my entire family. I am excited that his faithfulness has kept every one of my children serving Jesus Christ with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. There's some things that money just cannot buy. So I'm not saying we give to get. We give to be obedient. And then God just blesses us exponentially by that which he has given us when we use it. So we see this man that's given one pound, he gets 10 pounds. That's what was gained by the trading. If we plug in the formula, interest equals principal times rate times time, the interest that this man produced with his one pound is 1,000%. He had one, he produced 10. That's 1,000%. Anybody out there today in worldly trading, are you getting 1,000% return? If you were, would you take the money out? If you were, would you get tired of leaving it alone and not touching it? You'd be a fool to do that, wouldn't you? This man produced 1,000% in his return with the one pound. You see, the longer the master is away, the greater the rate of return is going to be. So yes, we think he's coming back. But when the Lord tarries, if we keep on working the rate of return is going to be higher than if we just stop and say, well, he's coming back any time, so I'm just going to lay aside the pound and I'm just going to wait for my reward. Time is your friend, but it also can be your enemy. If you quit working, the rate of return is going to be reduced. Faithfulness is always expressed in a period of time. Faithfulness is expressed in a period of time. It's how long you are faithful. Remember the parable of the seeds? There's four different grounds. We find the pathway that's hard as a rock. We find the thorns. We find the birds eat some of the seeds. We, we find the stones are in the way. But there's one particular ground. When that seed hit that ground, a person that lived in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, that shared the gospel constantly, 
It said that ground brought forth 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Is that not correct? Do you realize if you express 30-fold as a percentage? Can I tell you what 30-fold is that the gospel reproduces? 3,000%. 3,000%. If we're just faithful to keep planting the seed, it's going to fall three out of four times. It's going to fall on unfertile ground. But the one time it falls on good ground, it brings forth at the least 3,000%. 60 times, of course, then it's 6,000%. And then to bring forth 100 times is going to be 10,000%. You see, we don't know the rate. But Scripture says when Jesus speaks that the gospel is so powerful, so mighty, it's so important that when you invest your life with the gospel, it's coming back at 3,000, 6,000, 10,000 percent. No, we're not talking about money. Money doesn't last forever, but heaven sure does. And if God's going to give out crowns to his people, I sure want mine at his nail-scarred feet. I don't want to have just the one. You give me every one, Lord, not for my benefit, so I can simply cast it back to you and say, Lord God, you alone are worthy. And then, just to close with this last thought. And again, we're not going to turn the patch for the sake of time. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus Christ? He was so excited. He wanted to know all about heaven. And he, the Lord gave him the commandments that deal with man's relationship with man. He says, man, Lord, I've done all of that. But then he asks one startling thing. He says, what lack I yet? You see, good deeds always make, make you lack salvation. They'll never bring it to you. They'll just make you lack. He says, go ahead and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And take up your cross and follow me. Now, Jesus wasn't telling us you got to sell everything. The problem with that young man, he was an idolater and money was his God. And he went away very sorrowful. Then Peter looks at that and says, Lord, we've forsaken everything. We've given up our homes, our businesses, our boats. We have followed you for the last three and a half years. Lord, we have given up everything. Like you've asked this rich young ruler. And he says, the Lord, he said, what shall we have therefore? And here's what Jesus Christ says to those that invest all. He says, you shall receive 100-fold and shall inherit everlasting life. The rate of return to the individual that sells out for Jesus Christ is 10,000%. We're not talking about monetary value. This isn't the name it and claim it, church. This is what God's going to reward you in in whatever area of your life. God said, Peter... It's 10,000%. Then why will we not want to invest everything that we have for the glory of Jesus Christ? That when we stand before his presence or we fall on our face before his presence, and Lord looks through the books, the accounting of our life says, Wow, you've invested all your life in missions. Wow, you've invested all your time and your talents in the church here in Española. You never became disappointed. You never became discouraged. You've constantly, since only, you constantly, since your salvation has been faithful, the books are going to record. Listen, the return on that investment is beyond your wildest imagination. 10,000%, 100-fold. Again, we don't serve God because of what we can get. But I want to give everything that I possibly can to the master so that I can hear that, well done. Not just, well, you know you did well until you thought the Lord was coming back. Well, you know you did well until you had that financial reversal. Well, you did well until there was an unexpected illness or death in the family and then you just repented and walked away for a time period. Do not be disappointed with the mission. The disciples thought they were going to rule and reign when Jesus walked through the gates of Jerusalem. They weren't excited about serving any longer. The missions conference here this week 
is to help you understand we can't rely on what we have done. We must push on to what we still need to do. The longer you're faithful, the greater the rate of return will be when you receive that well done of Jesus Christ. Pastor.